My name is Jacob Stoops, and you're listening to the Page 2 Podcast, my podcast about the reality of being an SEO in which I chronicle the real-life stories, experiences, challenges, and advice from some of the most amazing people in the industry. Today, we talk with J.P. Sherman, Enterprise Search and Findability Manager at Red Hat, the world's open-source leader. I've always said that this podcast is primarily about telling the winding stories of where SEOs come from, and this episode may be the greatest example of that yet. JP has one of the most diverse and interesting backgrounds of any SEO I've ever chatted with. His jobs before SEO have included time as an archaeological dig consultant, a psychological operations specialist in the U.S. Army, a massage therapist, an autopsy assistant, a police officer, and more. We talk about how his background ultimately led him into a career in SEO, get deep on the intricacies of building an internal search engine and how it can be used for traditional SEO, and we both talk about our challenging backgrounds and how our upbringings have shaped the people that we are today. So get your popcorn and get geared up as we tell J.P. Sherman's SEO story. Hey, everybody, this is Jacob Stoops back with another episode of the Page Two podcast. And I am joined today by JP Sherman, manager of search and findability at Red Hat. How's it going, JP? It's going really well. Thanks for having me here. I really appreciate it. So, JP is yet another of the many um, awesome SEOs uh, in the Raleigh area. And basically everybody that I've talked to, we were just talking about this before we went on, everybody I have talked to and interviewed so far from the Raleigh area, they've basically to uh, a person have all said, you probably should go talk to JP. And it's actually funny, we have um, connections internally Uh, My company, Search Discovery, works with his company, Red Hat, uh, not on SEO stuff, but on some some other stuff. And then one of my colleagues, Jeff Luella, who also was an early guest on the podcast, also uh, is acquaintances, friends, colleagues uh, with, uh, with JP as well. So we had a lot of connections in common, and we didn't uh, finally come together until now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's really cool. Um, it's, 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 I love how the Raleigh search community is so interconnected and it's one of those things where you're like, you, you gotta kind of, um, there are so many different talents and we have everything from development to SEO to content to whatever it is that I do. And we all kind of get together and share information. And that's one of the best things I love about the Raleigh search, search community. Yeah. And I think the, um, the beer and SEO uh, meetup is one of the, and I haven't been to it. I would love to go someday if I'm ever kind of in the area. It seems like one of the best SEO meetups that might be in existence at, at this point, at least here on the, uh, in the U S for sure. Yeah. I've, I've only been to a few. Um, my, my days get pretty busy, but I try to go to them as much as I, po- as I possibly can. Uh, one of the things I really like about the beer and SEO is it's a really kind of good test bed for uh, different perspectives on common 
tactics or ideas. So mm-hmm. we get people here who have, you know, really crazy ideas and they get to present them and then flesh them out and then put them through the grinder. And um, we have amazing conversations because of that. Yeah, that is, it's uh, always awesome. And and that's what actually what I like about um, some of my colleagues internally at Search Discovery is we're able to do that as well. And it's, it's always awesome to be able to kind of put something out there and have other people bring either, either a different perspective or tell you, Hey, you're, you're not crazy. <laughs> you're not crazy. <laughs> uh, keep going down that, that rabbit hole. Um, but then, I've been told, I've been told that I am crazy, but just crazy <laughs> in the right direction. Right. Right. Just the perfect amount. That's funny. Um, so JP, can you, I've done a little bit of sleuthing on your background and Mm -hmm. it seems like you've been, um, and I want to get into some, some of the really interesting stuff because one of the things about this podcast that I, that I'm really trying to explore is the idea of where SEOs come from because Mm -hmm. certainly ain't college, right? (laughs) Right. Right. Teach SEO at college. So SEOs come from all of these different places and, and backgrounds. And it seems like in just looking at your background, you've kind of been all over the, all, all, all over the place. And, um, what I would say before I let you kind of talk about your background is there are some really amazing names of companies that you've been at. And I'll just name a few um, that I saw uh, top or I'm sorry, 10 ton hammer mm-hmm. set to stun five, one, nine games. I mean, these are, I don't, I, I just, it just stuck out to me that those company names are really cool. If for, if for nothing else, what was app? Um, yeah. So tell, tell me about how, where have you been? How did you get into to SEO and kind of take me through kind of your, your story? Okay. Yeah. So honestly, my story is really kind of long and meandering and, um, but I'll, I'll really start out with, um, uh, when I was, when I was in, I was online in 1989 and 1990. Um, and that's when I first kind of was introduced to the concept of a web page. Uh, since then I was always hooked on that kind of technology mm-hmm. from there. Uh, I did, I did a bunch of odd jobs. Like I had this thing about myself where I didn't want to stay at a job for like more than eight months. And it was probably a really bad idea, but honestly, a lot of my best stories start with a really bad idea. <laughs> um, so I, I, I worked at a carnival. I, I did archeological consulting where, you know, um, in North, so I grew up in Northern California. I grew up in Sacramento and the archeology span job was really cool. Cause I would dig up things and I would uh, do analysis and drawings for the state of California. Basically when they wanted to put in a new strip mall, if they found something that was uh, culturally, historically, or even biologically relevant, they'd have to send an archeological team to excavate and determine, is this um, important enough to preserve or can we go ahead and add a new gas station here? Um, So I did that. Um, can I stop you there? What are the sure. best, what are the best things that you ever found in some of those digs? Oh man. Okay. So, <laughs> um, the United States has a very tragic history with, uh, labor. And during the construction of the railroad, there were a lot of, uh, Chinese immigrants mm-hmm. who worked on the railroad. 
and they were like they were considered to be property essentially they were it was essentially slave labor and they couldn't quit and so when some of these um groups just got fed up they left the railroad companies had people come and hunt them down essentially and i would say I just have to say that the kind of one of the darkest part of the, the railroad history chapters in California was um, we found some remains, uh, human remains of people who based on some of the artifacts that they, they carried, we surmised that they were um, Chinese railroad workers um, who met, who were essentially murdered by the railroad company. Um, right. And it was like, and it is, it's, it's fascinating in the sense that like, um, you see that level of history come alive and it doesn't sound like it, it, it's, it's, how do I put this? It's, um, it's a brutal and horrible reality of, of, of essentially like on, on the backs of these people, America was built. Mm-hmm. And only now are we starting to recognize and specifically some of the places in California, they are, um, working with organizations to um, kind of one, admit that they were wrong and two, be able to give them the proper honors and representation in, in some of the museums that we have. So um, most of the time uh, it was, so that was like the really one big thing that we did, mm-hmm. but most of my job was excavating, um, you know, plates and forks and things like that. While, managing not to really upset the, the cow pastures, the cows in the pasture where we're digging. So it was uh, nine, nine to five uh, out in the, out in the, out in the, out in North Carolina and I'm not sorry, out in Northern California. Uh, but it was a great job. I loved it. So what eventually made you move on? Um, I would say the, the reliability of the work and I was, I was getting a little bit of a wanderlust because of the time. So Monday through Friday, I was working at the archeological consulting firm. And then Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I had a business as a certified massage therapist in the Bay area. So I take off my dirty jeans and mud cake shoes. I put on something nice, drive up to San Francisco and I've had a group, I have a group of clients there and I was burning myself out. I was working nonstop every day. And I realized that if I didn't do something incredibly crazy and or stupid, that I would never get out of California. So I joined the army, (laughs) you know, like you do. Yeah. And I was, I got into a U.S. army special operations, um, psychological operations and PSYOP is a lot like marketing. It's about information dissemination. It's about information recovery and analysis of target audiences to, uh, influence behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very marketing. And during peacetime, so basically what happened was um, I went into the army and I, I'd already spoke German and Spanish. So they sent me to learn Korean. Okay. And I, I did a little bit of focus on North Korean. Oh, wow. Because, yeah. So South Korean has a lot of English cognates. North Korean has a lot of Russian cognates. Mm-hmm. So I, I became an expert in North Korea and during peacetime, a lot of what I did is worked with like the world health organization to disseminate information about malaria prevention in Southeast Asia. 
which was incredibly satisfying. Uh, the second thing that, uh, that I was real, a part of was uh, humanitarian demining. So the border between like Thailand and Cambodia, it's the second most landmined area in the world next to the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. Mm-hmm. And there are still, even to this day, people who get hurt and killed because of those 50, 60 year old landmines. Wow. So we got to work with like DC comics and Marvel comics to create comic books in host language. And we'd get on a helicopter. We'd fly to these teeny tiny little remote villages and I'd show up and we'd be working with like Thai government to build like a small soccer field. So I'd hand them soccer balls with safety slogans. I'd hand them comic books and crayons and pencils and notebooks. And so we came in essentially to win hearts and minds, mm-hmm. but also to let them know if you see a landmine, well, first, like this is what, these are the various types of landmines. Here's what you do if you see a landmine mm-hmm. and kind of reinforce that information dissemination throughout um, Northern Thailand. And these are places where they have never seen a person of my white complexion before. And it was, it really kind of taught me that um, one Americans are so lucky and we don't even know it. Mm -hmm. And two, that there was a really big part of my, of my personality that loved service of getting, doing something that helped other people. Um, So with that said, it was one of those things where uh, I was, I was in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and I was getting ready to go jump out of an airplane. And my, one of my colonels, he shouts over me, he goes, Sherman, you're a nerd, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because I, I, (laughs) that's pretty obvious. That's a very obvious thing about me. Um, And he said, he told me, I need you to figure out search engines. And, and you're doing a presentation in front of, of a bunch of uh, colonels and generals next week. And so, of course, me, the lowly enlisted specialist, goes, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And this is in 1998. I came back and I put up to their presentation to, to tell people in the military how search engines work. And that was eventually adopted as part of the, of how do we reach a younger, more internet savvy audience and that was my very first introduction to SEO. And the combination of semantics and technology was so my jam. Um, so obviously, once I discovered that I loved it, once I got out of the Army, I went to UNC Chapel Hill. And I focused on evolutionary biology, uh, where I interned at a, at a medical examiner's office. So I was an autopsy assistant. Um, and it just so turns out that some weird things happen where like in order to get the job that I wanted, I had to be a sworn police officer. And that's not a route that I wanted to take. So I essentially talked my way into an SEO agency because, because of my experience and Jenny Hollis was one of my, was one of my teachers there. So wow. it was one of the people who taught me how to do things. Wow. And, and where was that at? Was it-, uh, it was in uh, Morrisville, North Carolina. It was a company that had several different names uh, from web source to market smart to keyword ranking. Okay. And um, 
I'd say that the one thing that they really did right is that they, that they knew how to build really good teams mm-hmm. as a company though. We were super aggressive on the sales side and it was like the early wild west years where like, Oh, you want page one ranking? We can guarantee a page one rank one <laughs> ranking. And then the client comes back and like, where's my ranking? Oh, we also included Dogpile and Lycos in that list of search engines where you're going to get the, so technically we filled our contract. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I remember the, now my, the old days for me are, I think a little bit different, but I, I remember a similar thing occurring where like when I first, and this is even before I got into SEO, um, we did have salespeople that were selling Yahoo local listings, mm-hmm. which was just seems so weird. <laughs> weird, <laughs> weird now that are like yellow pages listings. Um, it seems weird to, to think about now that people would have paid for that back then. And I remember our, our salesman at the time was so incredibly, incredibly, and we had a couple run through the place. So, so, so shady, so shady. Um, and not only that, they knew how to sell, but they knew nothing, not a thing. Exactly. Uh, they were selling and, um, it was, it was a shady, shady time <laughs> for sure. <laughs> That's how I learned how to do arbitrage, you know, getting, paying 30 cents for a click to get to a page where the only way out is another ad that was a dollar a click. Wow. And that was, um, yeah, I'm super proud of that time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was the wild west. I think everybody was just trying to, uh, to, to figure, figure things out and, uh, ethics in some cases be, be damned. Exactly. <laughs> and I think exactly. I was like, I didn't, honestly, I was so early in my career, I didn't know any better. So, and now looking back, I'm just like, wow, what were we doing? So. Exactly. But yeah. And, and honestly, like, so from that point I left, I left the co- company and I ended up working for the company was up. Mm-hmm. It was a German company that was a search engine for video games. And so they hired me because I had been a community manager at 10 ton hammer where I wrote about video games, specifically like the massively multiplayer online games. Mm -hmm. And at that time I, I was dedicating several hours a week of my life to, to playing these games and writing about them. And they're like, you know, SEO, you understand search and you're a gamer. We're going to move you out to Los Angeles and you're going to help make our search engine for video games. Amazing. Mm-hmm. So I went back. So at that time I'd been living in apex, North Carolina. So I got moved to Marina del Rey and my office was in Beverly Hills about a block away from Rodeo where the startup shared a, an office with Jada Pinkett Smith's production company. So like Jaden and I would be playing Mario Kart in the office. And that was pretty rad as in, as in Will Smith's son. Yes, as in Will Smith's son. Okay. Yep, that was a casual name drop, and I just had to clarify that. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's like a big recording artist. I like, good right, for right. I like, um, and it was a really wonderful experience because that's the first time I got into the guts of an actual search engine trying to figure out uh, relevancy tuning, how things rank, and understanding the, the, the knobs and levers of 
uh, relevancy tuning of keyword de- of things like key- of things like keyword density and does that actually help learning how to do like word to vec, which is kind of a semantic understanding of words by the surrounding by the words that surround it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that startup didn't really pan out too well, but I got a lot of really great experience. And after a couple of uh, jobs at uh, Tecmo, um, where I worked on the marketing of video games like uh, Ninja Gaiden mm. and um, a couple of other, a couple of other games, uh, I ended up doing some contract work with uh, Star the Star Wars Galaxies game as a community manager, um, and I ended up. Uh, kind of getting into the video game business where I built my site called set on stun, which was my kind of a side project where I had a podcast. I had content about the topic of video game marketing. So I became, that's what I did. Uh, we ended up having my wife and I ended up having identical twin boys in Santa Monica. And we realized that North Carolina is a better place to raise a family. So we moved back. Uh, a couple of jobs in, I worked at a, a mobile game company called 519 Games. Mm-hmm. And when Red Hat was looking for somebody who had SEO and experience inside of a search engine, they were really kind of looking for a position created for me. And six years later, I'm still at Red Hat and I still love it. So I guess Red Hat is a bit of um, a, a bit of a different different company than any of those any of those other companies. And um, I just wonder what was it like going from the, 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 the video gaming uh, side of things, which it seems like you sunk several years into um, to, uh, to, to Red Hat, which is a, a little bit different. And I'll let you kind of de- describe it, but uh, definitely different. Oh, it was a breath of fresh air. Um, as much as I enjoyed the, the video game industry, um, it's like I tell people, it's, it's the best job you'll have for the next six months. <laughs> Why is that? Um, because so much of the industry is based on hits and projects. And so you'll get a game that is incredibly popular, but because your part of it is done, you get laid off. Wow. Or that's brutal. It, it is absolutely brutal. And so I would work eight months out of the year and then four months out of the then the other four months I'd be looking for another job. And at that point I had three boys and the idea of stability became incredibly valuable to me. And it wasn't just stability. It was also red hat, you know, the champions of open source, um, a company that has a really strong ethos and, I, an ethos that permeates to, this, to, to, to the point where like when we select a tool or a vendor, we look at their open source contrib- contributions to see this, this organization has a tool and another organization has a tool, which one of those actually does um, open source contributions. And that's an influencer in some of our decisions. Wow. So that was moving to Red Hat was one of the best decisions I'd ever made. Um, the culture here is collaborative, creative. Um, they, they encourage a little bit of heresy. Like that thing that you're doing, I don't think we should do it this way. And I have a test. And I have an experiment to build. And they let you. So 
before we jumped on, you kind of gave the three components of your of your job at Red Hat um, in in no certain order: SEO, internal mm-hmm. search, which makes sense, but then e- evangelism. So mm-hmm. I guess can you talk about I, probably mostly the, ev- the evangelism component of it and why how each of those break down in terms of the percentage of time you spend, but also why you have to spend so much time on evangelism. I think, I think um, part of it is that I really, there is a lot of, um, in the culture of technical documentation and technical writing, there are some very, very um, fairly strict guidelines in order to how to write technical content. And even when you're looking at like um, KCS or knowledge-centered, uh, knowledge-centered support. Um, and forgive me if I get that acronym wrong, but for KCS, it's more of our troubleshooting and solution type content. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I, I teach people how to do is when, it, when a user has a problem, they generally search for the symptom. Like my system hangs or product won't boot in a 64 bit Dell bare metal environment. Mm. And the content is created to be more solution oriented. So there's a little bit of disconnect between how the user searches and how the content is created and much the same way in terms of uh, like technical documentation. When you break it down, it's so forgive me if I, I go way too into the weeds on this, but, Um, When you're looking at technical documentation, you're looking at installations, migrations, administration, um, optimization, and other, those kind of intents, those kind of intentions. And Google has changed. Google as an answer engine, as opposed to a search engine, has really changed the user behavior in how they search. And so the, the ways that technical writing has been done has not kept in pace with how Google has trained users to look for information. So I'm trying to bridge that gap between how users search and how writing is made. Um, And so that's a lot of the evangelism that I do is in teaching people, this is what Google does. This is what Google wants. This is what we have. And this, and here's how we can move this. And a lot of the evangelism I do is talking about simple things like how to, how to create titles that give a, a perception of value to a user. Um, I used this, I've used this example before, but when I worked at uh, Performance Bike up in Chapel Hill, um, if you look at, even today, if you look at the term, if you search for road bikes, most of the terms you're going to see is road bike dash brand, road bike dash brand, road mm-hmm. bike dash brand. And I thought that was stupid. So, cause I wanted to hit the user mm-hmm. and well, metaphorically, not literally, <laughs> although, although sometimes literally, Um, uh, I changed, I changed it to, you know, lightweight, fast bikes for the open road for kids bike. It was reliable, durable, affordable bikes for kids. Nice. And so part of that, part of that was, I wanted the user to see a connection to the value in the less than a second it takes to look at the snippet. And so I'm translating that kind of experience to our technical documentation and our technical writing of understanding the user intent and then creating the visible content, like the metadata content, like the title and the description, things like that, 
into something that addresses a, a, um, a need that the user is trying to express through keywords. Um, so that's a lot of the evangelism I do. On the outside, I'm, I talk about site search. I think that there are better people than me, more brilliant, more experienced people to talk about tech SEO, content writing, general SEO, link building, things like that. And these are topics that I don't feel that I am. I mean, like, it's, it's like I'm good at it, but like there are so many people who are better communicators at, of that than I am. Mm-hmm. And a lot of SEOs don't even really look at site search as a thing. It's something that when they're building, when a lot of organizations are building a site, they use the, the out of the box search solution that they plug and play. They make sure that, that it works. Sometimes they don't even connect analytics to it. And so when I speak at um, PubCon or Brighton SEO, or I'll be at advanced search summit in DC in about a month and a half, I talk about site search and what you can get from the inf- one, the, the information you can get, the behaviors that you can elicit, and then how that data can influence and inform everything from content strategy to promotions to uh, localization. Um, I've done things like uh, one of my one of my favorite things is when it comes to site search is how customizable you can make it. So for the exact same keyword like bike tires. In LA, we biased road bike tires. Mm-hmm. For searches of, road, of bike tires in LA, we biased road bike tires. For this exact same keyword, road bike tires in Colorado Springs, and we used, G- and we used uh, IP, IP targeting, we biased mountain bike tires. And we see our conversions increase. So the level of customizability, the level of information and personalization you can get connected into site search it is a huge, it is a hugely significant force multiplier. Um, and so when I, when I talk externally, I generally talk about site search internally. I really, I hit the, the basic SEO stuff, um, connections to users, um, search, ex- I say, you know, search experience optimization over search engine optimization. Don't optimize for, for engines, optimize for humans. So that's a lot of what I do here as well. Yeah, that, and I think that's a great way of looking looking at it. And um, I feel like most SEOs are focused on kind of, I guess what I would call maybe forward-facing vanity metrics, search volume, keywords, uh, rankings, organic, tra- organic traffic mm-hmm. conversions, like that type of stuff. And not to say that that stuff isn't um isn't important but ultimately what really matters is understanding user behavior and like you said understanding why they're searching for what they're searching for serving them the best content and the best experience and it sounds like sometimes even even giving them not just the best experience once they get there, but giving them an experience that may not necessarily be directly tied to your efforts in terms of moving the needle with some of those vanity met- metrics that I just mentioned, but getting them once they're within the site to the place where you ultimately want them to be via other means, like you said, uh, site search. Right. Uh, and I would be interested to understand how when you're, 
you know, you're probably responsible for, for some of those vanity metrics and how does site search play into your ability to achieve those goals versus how mm-hmm. might it be separate in terms of how you measure it? Right. Um, I think, I think, so when it comes to site search, uh, the first thing that I really look at is click through rates and so, and, and, and again, let me, let me kind of, uh, separate this a little bit real quick. Um, I live in the world of knowledge. Mm-hmm. So a user doesn't come to our site search and then go to a page and then buy a thing. Um, because Red Hat's model is a subscription model as opposed mm-hmm. to a e-commerce model. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because when you sell free software, you kind of have to do that. Yep. Um, so a lot of, a lot of the, uh, so I'm going to talk a, a little bit about the difference between e, uh, e-commerce versus knowledge. So from a knowledge perspective, or the first thing that I look at is, is really kind of click-through rate. Does the user find something that they think is worth clicking on? And the more people who find, and again, we go kind of back to the, the recognition of value in the SERP. And did the user find something that they thought would be valuable to click on? And how many of those people do? I don't, I don't want to say, did they, did they find what they're looking for in a knowledge context? Because it's much easier to say that in, a, in e-commerce because they'll, the, they'll put it in the shopping cart, they'll, they'll purchase, they'll sign up for newsletters, they'll apply coupon. There are so many of these littler, smaller conversion points that when sourced from site search, um, make it very clear they found what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. When it comes to knowledge, it gets a lot fuzzier. So, um, so then I take a look at search features. So for Red Hat, one of the things that we built was a kind of a, a knowledge graph. So when people look for a product, and again, this is very software focused, we don't know if they want support, troubleshooting, or if they want to download the thing. And what they search for is the name of the product. Like one of our products is called satellite. They type in satellite and they get a smattering of results because it recognizes that entity. And so the knowledge graph breaks it down into documentation, solutions, downloads, trials, and it appears kind of where Google's knowledge graph appears as well. Um, And so then we start getting into the concept of findability where how easy, is it, how easy is it for a user to find what they're looking for given the keyword that they entered or the query that they entered? So I look at the likelihood of them finding what they're looking for. So I get my overall kind of click-through rates, and then I have by feature, for example, the, the knowledge graph, the facet, and the key matches. Uh, key matches are very similar to paid search. Mm-hmm where you curate them, they're keyword targeted, and they appear as visually different than the natural search results. So then by feature, what are the click-through rates there? And so ultimately, I'm trying to build a model that it's requiring a lot of really interesting kind of conceptual ideas of um, time to query to completion. How do I know when a user completes their search journey are there any quantifiable events that can happen and how do I build those quantifiable events 
And then overall, if I know when they start, if I know when they end, I could take a measurement between those two points. And then my goal would be making that time shorter. So if it takes less time for a user to find what they're looking for, the happier they're going to be. And I apply that as well to the, on the e-commerce side. And it's not a native analytic equation that's part of any kind of analytics package. So it's something that has to be a little bit custom built based upon your own, how you track things. But uh, when I start talking about search quality as a time, as a metric of time, as a function of time, how quickly does a user get to what they're looking for? And that takes it into control. Um, What is the quality of the result set? Um, What is the quality of the content itself? And what are the relevancy signals that you're using to create that result set? So it's, it's, um, it's super fun and it's really complicated. Um, I get to work with really smart search engineers who um, teach me more about the, the, the code aspect and the technology aspect of that. So, so, so let me ask you, ask you this. There, there are a couple of things that came to, to mind and I'm trying to imagine um, myself or my listeners thinking to themselves as they're listening this, how, if that's something that I want to try out, how would I go about doing it and, and how would I go about um, making an improvement? So when you're looking at quality and maybe you have um, a search where a user abandons or where you have a search where they're just not getting to where they need to get to, or you think you can make it a little bit better. How do you go about dealing with um, finding abandonment issues where they just, they searched around and they couldn't find what they were looking for? Or how do you go about saying, Hey, I want to take this, um, this particular search result and refine it so that they get to where they're looking for faster. Like how do you make small refinements to move the needle? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't know. Just those are, those are some of the things that had occurred to me that you might work on all the time. Yeah. So I think, I think the first part of that is really kind of understanding what, what platform your, your search is running on. Mm -hmm. Um, We use um, solar which is an open source search platform. And on top of it, we have a third party analytics and uh, learning layer on top of that. And so, so I think one of the things that we do is I look at, I look for searches that have that give zero results. And so part of the data that you need to collect are what happens on the search page. One, what's the average position of a piece of content? for the universe of keywords. So if I have a page about um, peach ice cream, then what are, the key, what are the keywords that drive traffic to that one page? And then based on, those, based on those keywords, what is my average rank? And if I see that, you know, most of my queries are things like, how do I make pictures of recipes for um, ideas, things like that. It's like, are these, re- are these relevant? And then I look at the, the keyword level query. So peach ice cream, 
it has an average rank of one and has an 87% click-through rate, that makes me incredibly happy. But then there are often as there are a lot of unintended consequences as well, because you're going to get very, very strange queries that match certain sections of the text that were never intended to really match. They don't match the intent. So you could start taking a look at the piece of content and say, this page is ranking for these irrelevant queries. Why is that? Do we need to change the content? Do we need to focus up the content? Um, and then from that perspective, you can start building an overall level. Uh, and then this is when we start talking about scale. Um, Cause it'd be incredibly tedious to look page by page um, to these kind of metrics. So then we talk about scale overall, our search, you can lay it back up real quick. And by looking at the individual query um, in the, query click-through rates to this particular page, you can generally get a feel of how, how, how of a quality signal. And so just out of, out of uh, thin blue air, out of the 10 queries that bring traffic to this particular page, eight of them have a higher than 40% click-through rate. And you can aggregate that and say, okay, this page is a very, has a high quality signal for it, the universe of keywords that it ranks for. And then by definition, you can start taking a look at other pages that have a very low correlation rate of quality. Um, if a page ranks, if a page ranks for, but never get clicked on, why is it ranking for that page? And so you can start, I can start identifying groups of pages that are highly relevant and pages that rank, but are irrelevant. And so this really kind of informs the, the, um, the relevant, the overall relevancy of your search engine. And generally what I do is I take these very low relevant pages that, that do rank. I put them into our content review queue with an issue like this page is ranking for these five keywords. These five keywords are irrelevant to this particular page. And then I, then our authors and we work together to figure out what is this relevant to what is the user intent and how do we modify this particular page? Um, and when it comes to things like little things like, um, the keywords metadata, um, as we all know, you know, Google doesn't really care about the keyword metadata site search engines do a lot. Mm -hmm. And so by shaving a little bit of work off your time by creating these by creating keyword metadata into the pages, you're essentially shortchanging yourself on your site search engine because Google's not going to penalize you for having keyword metadata. But if you have nothing, your site search engine is less equipped to rank relevant content. So, yeah. Do you, and I, I guess I'll, I'll back this out by saying um, one of the things when we are looking at uh, our client sites that we look at quite often um, you know, we look at the technical aspects, but then when we're looking at content, one of the easiest opportunities usually to garner quick wins is by looking at obvious content gaps. And, and I always think of internal search engines as good opportunities to find content gaps. Do you ever find when you're getting um, these kind of null searches where it's, it's not serving up any relevant content, 
that rather than changing existing content, do you ever find that you need to create net new content for things that you just don't have a piece of content about at that point in time? Yes, all the time. Um, and part of part of the the, uh, the reporting structure that I, that I look at is is searches with less than or equal to four results. And just because I get some results doesn't mean that they're the, the right results. And so, and so they deserve to be taken a look at. So that's a lot of the work that I do with um, working with the content teams is identifying these null, null, null rankings or null reports. But I also want to take a look at some of the, the, the ones that have a tiny result set and then just evaluate, like, are these, are these the right pieces of content? And again, like, even if they are the right pieces of content, part of the um, expertise, authority, and trust, the EAT concept is building a level of content authority around a particular topic. So if we have, so it's not just the gaps, but it's also the thin topical content that, that I take a look at. And so if we don't have a lot of content, let's say on mobile application platforms, because I've identified um, this particular thin, thin content um, inventory or a gap, that's something I, I work with these groups say, this is what we need to take a look at because we have these number, this number of queries that are related to this particular topic. And this is the only content that they have available. So we don't, we can't match the intent. So there's a lot of work with the, with the content team and some of the feedback. And this directly applies to um, e-commerce as well, not just knowledge. So I generally find about a good, I'd say 100 to 200 um, queries or query groups in which thin content exists and gets put into a pipeline for creation. So, so I think the overall message, uh, if you're, if you're listening to this, (laughs) do not forget about site search and do not forget about how, how your content is both being matched up in search results, as well as if there are consumers that are searching for something that you do not have, whether it be a product or a piece of content or some support information, uh, maybe that's a good opportunity to, um, to go build a piece of a piece of content, especially if it's occurring in great volume and you do not have anything there to address it. So absolutely. Um, good. Exactly. Exactly. One thing. So you had, uh, yesterday some really, really interesting, um, interesting tweets and I, and I was hoping to, um, to cover them, cover them <laughs> with you. Um, there were, I think there was like an SEO chat hashtag um, going on. And I think you told a, a couple of really interesting and in some cases introspective stories. So the first one that I was hoping to cover and apologize, I'm just going to read it verbatim because I thought this has got to be an interesting story. Uh, you talked about Uh, You said, I was at a position where I accomplished a lot. I mean, removal of 1 million in affiliate overpaying, first position in more than 10 vital keywords. The CEO brought me into the office and screamed at me for creating an inventory issue. So what what happened? What happened? Tell that story, please. (laughs) 
So I, I'm not going to name any names. Okay, that's um, fair. But um, um, one of the or- one of the organizations I worked at, um, I had regular meetings with our, our supply chain marketing people, and I told them I have an idea, and this is what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to redesign our keyword strategy. I'm going to redesign some of our content. I'm going to build this and around and essentially build a combination of user generated content to be displayed with some of the product level stuff. Um, And long story short, the, uh, the, the supply chain marketing people were like, yeah, well they essentially didn't think that it would work. And I was like super excited. I was super gung ho. And like, I didn't know if it was going to work, but I also felt that like, if anything is going to work, this is going to work. And so for top level, top level keywords that we had never ranked, even on page two, in two and a half months, we were number one for at least 10 high value, high volume keywords with a better than average conversion rate potential um, outranking Amazon, Walmart, Target. And the, and basically what happened was that our supply chain uh, marketing people were completely overwhelmed by the amount of orders that we had. And um, I was brought into the CEO's office and I honestly, at the time, I, I literally thought he was joking. <laughs> like, like he, like, it just seemed to me over the top. I'm, I'm it's like, I, I, <laughs> it's like I overloaded his lemonade stand. <laughs> and, and, and so in my head, I'm like, okay, he's being a little over top. He's being a little dramatic, but the, clearly he's joking. And so I called him. I said, you're joking, right? And he wasn't. Wow. And so I'm like, I'm like, once I realized that he wasn't joking, I kind of looked at him and was, one, isn't this a good problem to have? Two, isn't this your job? Like, yeah. I feel like I have been communicative. I feel that I have let you know what I'm doing. I have communicated this and get set the expectation to our users, not to our users, but to our supply chain marketing people. And then I did it and it's better than expected. And so for me, it was, it just became a very like, at that point, I no longer trusted the organization. And cause at least in my head, I had done everything that I possibly could to, to do right by it. And it was, it was at that point where I was like, okay, I, I really feel like one, if I'm going to grow as, if I'm going to grow as a professional, I need to leave Two, if I stay in this, what is clearly a kind of a low expectation slash toxic environment, um, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to be happy and I'll just burn out and I'll, just be sending reports all week and not really doing anything. Um, yeah, it was, it was just that kind of realization where how important, how important to me as a person 
a culture of collaboration, of openness, of accountability. Because um, one of the things I one of the things now that I tell my the, my supervisors and my bosses is that when it comes to my field, you will not be surprised. Somebody's not going to come up to you and say, "Hey, this thing happens that you don't already know about." Because that's a level of proaction. Even if I even if I fail on an experiment, they know that I'm doing this experiment. They know my expectations. They know what the chances are going to be. And I just don't want my bosses to be surprised by any information that they get that they don't get from me. Yeah. Um, and the level of and the level of support, um, specifically at Red Hat, where I found is that it, that it becomes reciprocative, reciprocal. And completely, and it just, it allows me to challenge things that have been set in the company for years and build an experiment. So, so yeah, I think, I think that was, that was a really, really telling, a really telling experience, but at the same time, um, um, it didn't have happened. It, did, it shouldn't have happened that way because to be perfectly honest, I probably would have been still working at that organization if those kind of things were, um, I guess not yelled at. Yeah. And uh, you know, I just, I think it's, it can sometimes be really hard to be in an SEO. Um, you know, not only are you, are you just fighting day in and day out to get things implemented so that you can perform well, but I've, no, I don't think I've ever gotten yelled at. <laughs> performance, Right. But there are times where you perform really, really well, and it doesn't seem to, to matter. Um, you know, I, I can think of several clients where it was either a, uh, you're performing well, but we're still, we're going in a different direction. No, no matter the, the, the fact that you're like driving, you know, year over year <laughs> revenue increases that are through the roof or uh, you're, performing well and we're happy with where we're at and we don't need your services anymore because just because you're performing well now doesn't mean you'll be performing well forever. So right. like it's a constant battle to evangelize and make sure, uh, make sure that you're able to, to take credit for good, good performance without necessarily being over, over the top. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is a constant, constant battle. So I can't even imagine what it would be like to drive that good performance and then have a reaction that goes that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think from, from also from experience is that um, some of the, some of the good work that I've, that I've been able to accomplish part of that. And I think this is one of the reasons why I think that I'm much, um, much more per, like personality wise inclined to be an in-house SEO than agency SEO. Mm -hmm is that the work that I've done for, for Red Hat over the past five years, like when things go sideways, you've already built up a level of kind of authority within your developers, within mm -hmm. your designers, within your managers, within your um, administration people. And like JP generally knows what he's talking about. So now that things might be going sideways, you know, he's still a part of this team and, and he generally knows what he's talking about. So let's not just blame him for what Google did. Because I'll be super honest, like the the shift from the shift from Google to the mobile index mm -hmm. um, across across kind of the 
software, hardware, support industry kind of groups, that's shaken, that's shaken a lot of people because um, a lot of these organizations are larger. They tend to be a little more slow moving. There's a lot more processes. There's a less kind of agile response time. And so for us, it's been one trying to explain what the move to the mobile, mobile first index is two how it affects us three um, kind of calming everyone down and saying, don't worry, the basics still work, but we need to prioritize some of the more technical slash architectural issues before some of the more, I don't know, keyword targeting um, projects. Yeah, and implementation. Like, there, people people ask me quite often, like, what's the hardest part of uh, of SEO? What's the hardest part of your your job? Um, I, I outside outside of the things like impost, imposter syndrome and kind of <laughs> the, the personal things, I would say it's implementation, especially on the agency side. Um, agency side, which I, I find that I'm more well suited. I've been in house a couple of, couple of times and maybe my experience was tainted by being in house where there were cultures that just weren't optimal for me. Mm -hmm. Um, but in, in agencies, I've found that I thrive, but the problem is sometimes it takes time to build up trust. Um, which you have more time to build in, in, you know, when you're internal, uh, in, in house, because you can go see people, for example, in the break room and just talk with them and get to know people on a personal, more personal level. And I've always said that, Hey, you're more apt to work really hard for people that are your friends versus people that are, are not. Um, yes. And with agencies, um, that develops over the course of time, but you have a short time frame in which to, prove yourself. But what I'm getting to is implementation is really the hardest thing because especially on the technical side, it takes a really long time. It takes time both to, once you get in there and start getting your hands dirty to find the issues. Um, but then it also takes time to write up the specs. And then even it takes even more time once the client understands the issue and then buys into it. Sometimes they don't. Um, it takes even more time to then get it into their development queue. Um, and I always uh, say, because sometimes working with developers can be, can be challenging or working with technology teams can be challenging for a number of reasons, but mm -hmm. it's also really valuable to have empathy because they're getting hit up from every single direction. And yes, your SEO stuff is important, but it's only going going to fit in good order and in in, yes. uh, in 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 good time when they're ready to do it, which may be in some cases six or eight months down the line. Meanwhile, your contract is up after twelve months, and you've only gotten your first major thing implemented like eight months later. So, like, you have to have a healthy degree of patience, but it can be incredibly incredibly difficult. Uh, yeah, and pressure packed to, to yeah. get things implemented, um, which goes back to, um, probably what you, what you might be experiencing with, um, with the mobile first shift. And, and if some of those sites were, uh, slow to adapt to mobile and mobile usability and being good on mobile, that, that definitely may have impacted them and it may take some time to, to unwind for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think, I think for me, it's, it's, I'm definitely much more suited playing the long game. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And I've, I've found that on the agency side, for, for me personally, you know, playing the shorter game, it's like it can be done, but it's, it's, it's a, that is more challenging for me to do than mm-hmm. playing the longer in-house game. Yeah. And so I don't want to say that I'm bad at it. It's just like, it's a personal preference for me. Like right. I love playing the long game because then I can start marking the, my calendar and saying, this is when this happened, this is when this happened, this is when this is what happened. And if you look to go for a four-year period, it's pretty impressive what, mm-hmm. what can be done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to be respectful of time. I've got um, a couple more questions, if that's, if that's okay. And one more, yeah. tweet, one more tweet to read um, really quickly. So you, you, you said something else yesterday that I thought was um, incredibly important, and it's something that I like to bring up. Um, as much as possible, because I do think it's important, not just in the SEO space, but just in general. So again, I'm going to, I'm going to read a two, which I'm assuming you were answering a bunch of questions, but I just Mm -hmm. caught this one in my Twitter feed. Some of the professional symptoms I've had before uh, apathy, maintenance, only effort, just reporting, finding busy work from a physical and mental perspective. I tend to close off and shut down. I get myopic on my tasks and lose connection to other people I'm finding ways to interrupt those patterns before it happens. And that's when the, and I I don't know if these were exactly in order, but I I'm I'm assuming they were. And that's when the brain ghosts happen. Those are the voices that only exist in my head and don't really exist. Imposter syndrome, jealousy, sometimes depression for me, pattern interruption and self-awareness is one key to deal with and prevent it. So I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit to um, some of some of that and some of kind of like what you've felt, what you've experienced and maybe advice for other people dealing with that. Yeah. Um, so I just, part of that is I really want to say, I really want to um, speak out and just, I, I admire so many of the people um, who have been much more proactive about talking about um, some of the, the mental illness that has been part of, the industry and like, and for me, it's like SEOs. Like, I kind of think that we're a bunch of really clever, smart, but occasionally broken people <laughs> with with high degrees of with high, with a very high degree of empathy. Yep. And 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 this is this something that I love about people. And so, the the the, the openness and the sharing. Um, I read uh, Rachel Costello's article from Deep Crawl about her history. Mm-hmm. I thought that was incredibly brave. Mm-hmm. Um, Jenny's been Jenny Hollis has been open about it, and the fact that we've lost some really amazing people um, from these issues. Uh, I don't know if you ever got to meet uh, Jordan Jordan Cap Capeler Jordan nope. Cap. Never. Uh, did. Yeah, we we lost him last year, and he was just an amazingly kind and brilliant person. So uh, the ability, our industry's acceptance and lifting of people who are who kind of expressed this is really good to see. Um, from my perspective, you know, I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm more of the person who like, I will, I try to amplify other people who are experiencing these things and who write about these things as opposed to jumping in and saying, me too, me too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I grew up, I grew up in a cult. I grew up in an actual cult. Uh, with with my sister 
um, to the point where we had to escape the cult. And the, the cult that we were in, um, it was a very particularly religious cult. And after my sister and I escaped, they would send people out into Sacramento to spy on us and report back on what we were doing. Um, so part of that experience in my, in my life has been, um, I very, I, I very easily and I very sh- quickly shut things down as a self-protection method because if I don't care, then you can't hurt me. Um, and so part of that has been dealing with a lot of the repercussions of um, things like uh, judgment and just a, a, a little and, and quite a bit of PTSD because it was it was bad. But my because my sister and I both had the ability to escape that environment. Um, she's actually off. My sister is an amazing person. She's the reason I'm alive. <clears throat> um, but for me, a lot of those behaviors that were necessary and critical when I was younger, surviving in that environment, you know, being able to shut whole sections of my personality down. Um, being able to close off my emotions, being able to focus on just one thing because I can control that one thing. Um, Those had become very habitual for me. And um, so so part of what I'm trying to do now in dealing dealing with it is um, with with some of my PTSD triggers, I recognize the patterns of my behavior. Like, I'm like, hold on, hold on. I'm starting to spiral here. And the first thing I do is I put some sunlight on it. I tell a friend, you know, you know sometimes it's literally just a text spiraling. Wow. And I, and I get a response. You got this. And that little bit of sunlight, one, it, it, it helps me put into perspective where it's not just me feeling this. <clears throat> uh, other things like the depression is um, a lot of times what cults do is they try to separate you from people who love you. Um, and they tell you that you're not actually worth, you don't, you don't deserve affection or love or respect or even recognition. And, so that's those are struggles that I, tr- that I that I get trapped into every once in a while, but at the same time, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, I've I've learned how to recognize what these things are, and then because it was my sister that came up with the term brain ghosts, because to be perfectly honest, my sister is like the clever, smarter, ta- mm-hmm. more talented version of me, um, and she can dance. I can't. <laughs> uh, there's a court order against my, me dancing but, right, right. Um, but she came up with the term brain ghosts and they're so appropriate for me because they only exist in my head and they're not real but they feel very real yeah um, and so and so to be perfectly honest the thing that really really kind of gets me through some of the tougher times is a lot of my extracurricular extracurricular stuff is is service oriented you know trying to help other people um 
joining organizations that have a goal that's bigger than myself. And um, essentially, you know, may not work for everybody, but like putting myself, putting my work into a larger context of people who need help centers me. And so it's, it's very much kind of a, um, like I want, I'm helping people is a way to connect me to the community and to issues that are larger than myself. And so, and it create, and sometimes it can create real change in either policy or other people's lives. And I don't want to say that I do it just for that kind of satisfaction. I do it because one needs to be done, but it has a really nice side effect of forcing me to connect with other people, their stories, their conditions, and helping me realize that like trying to quantify trauma is never a good idea. Like you have trauma, I have trauma and not getting into these contests where it's like, it's like the, uh, if you've seen Deadpool, it's like, I used to live in a box. Oh, you had a box? <laughs> like that whole scene there is just the, the, the quantifying trauma in a very comedic way. And like there are people out there who is like, oh, you had this happen to you? Well, I had this thing happen. It was twice as worse. So it kind of gets me out of my own, my own head whenever I try to, whenever I kind of start down those roads. So let me, first off, um, thank you for sharing that. Um, that's incredibly personal and um, it definitely like hit me, hit home with, with me. Be, I, I mean, I wasn't in a cult or, or anything, but like you said, everybody has their, their own issues that they've, they've gone through. And I've, I've definitely gone through my share of issues, um, you know, growing up. And I, I find it amazing how, the things that happen at the beginning of your life, uh, no matter how trivial, have such an effect even, even you know, m- many decades later. They, they really shape who you, who you are, those first couple uh, of developmental, developmental years. And, and you would think who you are, na- who you are now is in no way related to things that happened 30 or 40 or more years ago, but it absolutely molds you. And it, it, I just find it, um, I find it amazing. And I do find that sometimes people, and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it here purposely, but I do find that people try to almost one up you. I I think one of the things that I found when I was, um, so I experienced uh, issues with with abuse um, when I was younger, and when I finally gained the courage, and this was not that long ago, right? The, this mm-hmm. happened to to me when I was a, a young child, and I'm 37 now, and I only only just now confronted my abuser um, a couple of years ago, right? Good, so good for you, good for you. I that long to 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 build the courage, but then the second I did it. They were like, well, your, yours was nothing compared to the way that I grew up. I had it so much worse. And I just had to stop them and go like, this isn't a contest. 
this isn't a contest. Don't try to invalidate my feelings just because you went through it and it might've been worse. Like that has no bearing on, on this. So I get what you're saying, man. That's, um, it's really obnoxious, really obnoxious. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. What, uh, I, I can totally relate. What, I guess, what advice would you, would you then give to people for overcoming some of these, um, brain ghosts that we, that we all kind of have? I don't know. I don't know if I have any really good advice. Um, so, and to be perfectly honest, um, I think, I think my journey in overcoming this was pure spite. <laughs> um, and kind of, kind of, it was a, once I realized what was happening and once I realized how damaging it was, and even, even though I had the context of like, even I knew that my abusers were part of a larger system of abuse. Like even though I understood all that, it boiled down to, and, and again, like I don't want to say this is the best way to do it or even the right way to do it. But like it was, it was more of a F you, I'm going to have a great life. I'm going to be successful. Yeah. I'm going to be, I'm, if anyone's going to know anything about me, it's because I'm a kind, thoughtful, empathetic person who loves helping. I could do anything else in the world. I can have any job, but I want, it's that, it's that whole Maya Angelou thing. Nobody really remembers what you do, but they remember how you made them feel. And mm-hmm. my goal in life is to make sure that my kids, I don't care if they remember that they, if I got them the dinosaur that they wanted when they were seven, but if they feel respected, loved and heard, and that's how I want people that's how I want to treat people. So what gain, what began as a screw you, I'm going to, I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to let you screw me up became a very active effort to, to be very conscious about how other people feel. And I want to be able to, um, either by action or word or whatever, like have them feel, respected and trusted and heard. Yeah, that's, that's an awesome way to look at it. And I, I think very much as I'm raising, raising my kids, uh, thinking, uh, you know, thinking about what things were like for me growing up and even then thinking like when I have kids, I don't want to have them feel the, the way that I'm, the way that I'm feeling. So I think about how much, things have stuck with me from back then now in, in the frame of reference with my kids and the things that they're going through. And I think like when I was that age and, and I'm just thinking they're now going through um, that part where whatever happens to them, good or bad is going to stick with them when they're 40 or 50 or whatever. So yep. just trying to make sure that I instill like exactly what you, what you had said, those types of feelings and values um, and um, making sure that they don't grow up under the same circumstances. And it's not that I don't want them to face adversity because I think adversity can be a good thing, mm-hmm. but not that kind of adversity. <laughs> right. That kind of adversity. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's such a challenge being able to balance things like, 
you are loved and respected and adored and I, and I love you, but that was a bad choice. Right, right, right. And you will face consequences for your actions. Yeah. And trying to make, make that level of like, it's never about you're bad. It's like that choice was not okay. And then frame, and I try to frame it with my boys because like they're four boys mm-hmm. um, of like what you did affected other people. And it's not bad because it's, it's understand that you have a place in this world and you, your choices affect other people. And that's, that's a really hard, hard rub to, to, to kind of walk on. Yeah, for sure. So to close out the interview, I always like to give people a chance to uh, talk about uh, who helped them get to where they are. I feel like we all kind of walk on the shoulders of the people that kind of came before us. And I've said, um, I've said to, to, to Rand in my very first episode, um, and to certainly, I haven't, haven't necessarily said this to, to everybody, but to all the people like yourself that have come before me, it is because of people like you that people like me have a, have a job. So who are those people for you? Um, I would have to say most, most directly, um, the people that really, really sparked this passion for me. Um, uh, one is Jenny Hallis. Um, she really, she, she got me passionate about the tech side of things. Um, another, another guy that I worked with, Garrett French. Garrett French is one of the smartest, kindest most creative people I've ever met. Um, he is, he's a link builder by trade, but he's just a genius all around. And I, I, Garrett French is one of my favorite people. Um, I would say, um, people like Donnie Rhodes. Um, you may know him as the Gonzo SEO. (laughs) Um, he is, he is, unfiltered, probably one of the best BS detectors I know. Um, he can generally sniff out BS a mile away and he is <laughs> very blunt and very frank about it. And he is the first person that I call when I'm like, I've got an idea, but I think it's crap. And he's like, yep, that's crap. <laughs> Thank you. Um, oh. and, and then lastly, probably my, my little sister. Um, she is she is an incredibly strong person and I've um, and again like to tell you a l- I'm super quick she was 22 years old and she owned her own IT consulting company that's my little sister so I've always I've always looked up to her as and as as somebody that I've I've, I've just respected and adored oh geez I'm so jealous I was still drinking my life away in college at that point in time mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. So where, where can people find you? Um, so I just restarted my blog and it's not really ready for actual human consumption yet. Um, but it's going to be at jpsherman.com. But I am generally active on my Twitter account, which is just at jpsherman. And I think I, I tweet about 20 to 30% SEO and just 70% like random weird stuff that I find. 
Um, I've been told I was, I was reached out. I was once told by a personal branding consultant that I should not talk about dinosaur sex so much. <laughs> Just and, not, not so much. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was like whatever the amount of dinosaur sex I talk about, it's probably the wrong amount. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Cool. Well, Thank you so much for, um, for coming on. It was an, another incredible interview, in my opinion. So really appreciate the time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it. Um, and if there's anything I could do to uh, spread the word or help you out, let me know, all right? Awesome. Totally appreciate it. Have a good one. You too, man. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to the Page 2 Podcast. If you like this podcast, you can listen and rate it on a number of platforms including Anchor.fm, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, Applecast, Stitcher, Breaker, CastBox, and more. If you wish to support the growth of this podcast, please visit my website at jacobstoops.com forward slash page 2 podcast or Anchor.fm forward slash page two podcast to make a donation would be greatly appreciated if you're an seo who would like to be interviewed i'd love to have you simply send me an email at jake.stoops at gmail.com and we'll absolutely set something up until next time happy optimizing